The following podcast episode contains discussion of personal experiences of medical diagnoses and procedures. None of the people featured are medical professionals, and you should seek your own medical advice from your own doctor if you suspect that you have sleep apnea. You're listening to Sleep Apnea Stories. I'm Emma Cooksey. And if, like me, you're living with a chronic sleep problem, you just find the place for inspiration, hope, and encouragement. I'm not a doctor, but I have spent more than 10 years coping with sleep apnea and have a great deal to share about strategies I've used to live more fully every day. Find tools to live your best life while managing your symptoms. We'll hear inspiring stories from all sorts of people making the best of life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone, it's Emma Cooksey here and this is episode two. So I just wanted to say a really big thank you to everybody who listened to the first episode and also reached out to me by um, email or DM on Instagram um, just to say that you really enjoyed hearing my story and that you could relate to it. Um, I really feel like we're already building a little community um, so that was really awesome. Um, I'm still looking for people to interview about their own journey with sleep apnea in an upcoming episodes. So if you're interested um, in that, uh, just reach out and get in touch by Instagram. It's at sleep apnea stories or by email is um, sleep apnea stories at gmail.com. Okay, so on to today's episode. Um, we're going to be talking to Karen Wolf. I was lucky enough to get in touch with Karen and hear her story. And I think you're going to be really blown away by, uh, you know, just what a big impact sleep apnea was having on her life and what a big turnaround she had when she found the right treatment. So here's Karen Walk. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for joining me today. I just wanted to start with asking you just where your journey with sleep apnea began. My journey with sleep apnea um, actually started uh, way before I knew that I had sleep apnea. My symptoms um, really started to manifest to a point where it was hard to ignore in um, late 2011. And that landed me in the psychiatrist's office. Mm -hmm. I think that's so common. Like that's kind of what happened with me. So I'm really interested to hear your take on it. So at that point, what was it really, was it depression or you were having memory issues? What, what was the main driving factor of that? So as I recall, uh, my most predominant symptom towards late 2011 was, uh, panic attacks and, um, anxiety that kind of came along with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of memory loss. And that was, and then the depression that kind of came with knowing things were happening, like knowing the memory loss was happening yes. and not re- like word finding was, um, the first thing I noticed. I remember I used to be a trainer for an electronics company. I used to be like a sales, um, representative slash trainer. So I was training mm-hmm. a team of um, in electronic store employees about a camera lens and um, and about a camera and I couldn't remember the words lens cap. Oh my goodness! 
and it was the weirdest thing to look at a lens cap and not know not only the word lens but the lens cap like the whole and and I had been doing this particular training at many stores before that and I remember that moment when I couldn't find the words and then I remember that I knew I knew the words and yeah. I hadn't written anything down because why would I ever need to do that? Mm -hmm. So it became pretty obvious to everyone around me that something was wrong. Because and, and did that up. happen um, gradually? Like, did, did you start to kind of, you know, be in the store and think, what did I come here for? Or, or, or was it more of a sudden thing where you suddenly were at work and couldn't remember these basic words? I think it was very gradual. Mm -hmm. It also came up in my being prepared for the store visit, um, not knowing what materials I needed to bring with me, not even knowing, like we would pay attention to what week it was and be really conscious of our sales numbers. Yeah. Um, I had trouble hold, retaining information. I had trouble. I also remember when things got really bad, I had trouble like with reading email and understanding wow. it. And as it kind of progressed, you know, between late 2011 and to 2015, that's when, you know, the symptoms kind of shifted and, and the treatment started to shift. My, my psychiatrist originally put me on a medication for ADD. Okay. Um, and it was a uh, Stratera. And what was great about Stratera was it was like a non- habit forming non-stimulant to a point um, um, ADD medication what was not great about it was it increased my heart rate oh dear which if you're having panic attacks yeah. and yeah. and feeling anxious yeah. is you know exacerbating your problem really but um, right. right so that's what that was the very first treatment you, you tried though. yeah yeah so we did that for a few years and then there came a point where because I genetically have low blood pressure when you have a high pulse and low blood pressure that doesn't work really well no. so i was having um problems with dysautonomia um and i would have uh, what they call a vasal vagal syncope so i would just randomly pass out um uh, and so whether, at that point are you still managing to hold down your job yeah so i wow. until you know until um let's see late it was like 2015 around 2015 2016 that's when everything started to get really bad and then i did go out on a work disability leave mm -hmm. and by then i was going through my sleep apnea journey you know where where i actually got diagnosed okay and i was doing the treatments um so i did you know switch from going to psychiatrist who sent me to the neurologist who sent me to the endocrinologist and um the rheumatologist and we kind of tried to rule out all of these things and i remember at one point i was seeing this rheumatologist and she said you know you might have fibromyalgia but at the same time i was going to a sleep doctor and getting a sleep test and when they did the sleep study they said you have sleep apnea i came back to the rheumatologist she said well then you don't have fibromyalgia <laughs> and i'm like oh well yay um and so, you know, there, yeah so all these with different all these different doctors did um, it, it always surprises me in retrospect when I hear people's stories that the even though the medical professionals you went to see were not experts in sleep disorders, it's surprising to me that people are 
coming to see any medical professional and they're saying, you know, I'm having anxious feelings. I'm like, I would tell everybody, you know, like I have headaches in the mornings, I'm sleepy all the time. And it's really surprising in retrospect that nobody suggested having a sleep study. Did you feel the same way? So I had a pretty proactive psychiatrist, you know, he sent me, he was almost acting as a primary care. He sent me around to all these specialists. And so I, I saw him since late 2011, I was physically seeing him in this office for years every week. So he got to know everything about my level of functioning. I mean, he has notes and notes and notes of Mm -hmm. how I was doing, but um, he was the first to kind of guide me towards you know, finding out something about sleep. Um, and he has since, since all of this has happened with me, he continues to be my doctor. Um, he now asks all his patients first about their sleep. That's um, terrific. So yes, I, I believe that it's pretty common number one for women to kind of be sidelined, not yes. on purpose, but, right. but because their symptoms are mm-hmm. so significant and they seem to come out of nowhere. Yeah. And because medicine is practicing and it's not, it's not, there's nothing's clearly defined. Right. And because everyone has their area of expertise, like some people it's the brain and some people it's the, let's say endocrine system or everyone has their area. Um, I find that it's hard to find, find a a doctor who's an expert in all areas. Like a generalist. Yeah. A generalist. And, and I never could find uh, a generalist that really understood a general practitioner that really understood what was going on. So I just really relied on my psychiatrist and because he was the first one to really understand because my symptoms manifested psychiatrically first. Yes. And then, and then he kind of dro- drove me in a different direction and said, you know, your symptoms seem organic. Like there something is neurologically different. Mm-hmm. Um, when the, with the memory loss just became more and more significant. And then eventually I got diagnosed with a mild cognitive impairment. So, you know, he, he guided me to the neurologist and then the neurologist ran a series of tests to try and see what was going on because I was having so many, so many myriad of symptoms and they didn't necessarily all look like they related to something unless you finally found out about sleep. And so when you say a mild cognitive impairment, are we talking about, so you said about forgetting what a lens cap was called. Um, what other kind of things was it mainly a memory issue where you just couldn't remember names for things and so it started as word um you know recalling words or being able to word finding is what what we defined it as Mm -hmm. um then it started to become remembering people uh remembering names of just names of objects in general um even how to use some objects that maybe um, I remember specifically, I had this Pampered Chef can opener. So that can opener is really unusual, right? But, and so you have the, the way you, the mechanics of it and the spatial orientation and, and, you know, hand-eye coordination, all of those things that I took for granted that it was very simple to use that can opener. That's why I bought it, right? Right. I couldn't, couldn't even remember how to use it. And uh, then I would start to forget people. Like if, if I saw you, um, in a, in one form, let's say at your work. And mm-hmm. then I saw you at the grocery store, I had somebody say long time, no see. And it took me the whole day to figure out why they said that. Cause I didn't even know who they were, but I had seen them earlier in the day at their work. And then I saw them at the grocery store. 
That's kind of distressing. Like, I would imagine, like, was that quite upsetting for you when that happened? It made me, um, made me scared. And, and um, so I documented a lot of it. I have tons and tons of notes. So what that led me to do was store almost everything I ever needed to know on my phone. So first it started with like reminders and calendar items, and then it started to be like everything. And then I started to document, like, if you look at my Instagram account, you can see while I was almost like housebound for quite a while because mm-hmm. I wasn't able to function in the world. Um, I took a lot of pictures um, yeah. and posted. On, I looked pretty much lived on Instagram um, and a memory loss turned into everything, including my worst. I didn't recognize my boyfriend at night. Oh my um, goodness. And uh, I remember he came to kiss me good night. <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, uh, I know I should know who you are, but oh, I don't. So, I'm so glad that this story has a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it was really weird. It was very progressively worse. And and I did, you know, try the the treatments and all. So you did eventually get diagnosed with sleep apnea. So did they give you a CPAP or what was the first thing? Yes, that was the first step. Okay. Um, I started with a CPAP uh, and, and I did that therapy for about a year and then, and then I was uh, switched over to BiPAP. Okay. And so all in total was two years of CPAP and then BiPAP. And that came with like, cognitive behavior therapy for um, insomnia and for nightmares from the mask. Okay. And so I did that cognitive behavior therapy. I would go in for sessions and we also learned, I learned sleep hygiene. So you just, so when you're saying that you needed to go for help, you just find the mask really uncomfortable and like, did you have a claustrophobic thing going on or what, what was the issue? Yeah. So I have claustrophobia and I would like wake up and pull the mask off and then not really remember and then I wake up like covered in sweat, three, four in the morning. I'd be oh, up gosh. for a couple hours. I have nightmares about just putting the mask on. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I put it on and then, and then I feel like I'm suffocating. Um, and I found out I had like air aphasia and, and I was um, swallowing air. Mm. I wasn't really doing a good job of breathing. <laughs> I'm just and, breathing. <laughs> and then I had um, esophagitis from the pressure. Goodness so, gracious. You know, like in, yeah. um, so, and then there also, I noticed in your bio, you, you did have a uh, nasal surgery at one point. Was that after yes. the CPAP or when so, was that? So um, when I started CPAP, um, I was sent to an ENT surgeon mm-hmm. um, to kind of look into my nasal turbinates and see, because the sleep doctor had said that I think there's an issue there. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to go see this doctor. And I did, and they did a nasal turbinate reduction. And that whole point of that would be so that I could tolerate the mask. Okay. But it, but in the end, that did not have the desired effect. It actually was nice because for the first time in a long time, I was able to breathe at all through my nose, mm-hmm. but it didn't, it didn't resolve the problem that I wasn't tolerating the CPAP. Got and then it. while I was looking, you know, looking compliant on paper yeah, and I, my AHI numbers were reduced. I didn't, my, my epi worth sleepiness scale, which people take those tests when you go into the, go in for your visit, you take yes. a, a survey and then I find out my sleepiness scale has me like, um, 
a, a very high number. Yeah. And I, I took a pill to stay awake. So I was so tired that I had to take a stimulant for a year. Wow. Just to stay awake so I could function. And so at that point, like were you, you, you're not able to work at that point. So I wasn't able to work for okay. about a year. And then um, I got hired to work for the company I work for now. And um, I was working part-time. So I was able to work enough. Um, the pill would give me enough time to work just enough. And then, and then I needed to get off of my one Cobra and onto their policy. So I needed to be able to work 30 hours. So okay. that was my goal. So this pill, I kept increasing in the dosage because it stopped being effective. Mm-hmm. So I could get, I, I was able to get to my 30 hours a week by working six hours a day. That was the maximum amount. By basically I, taking a pill to keep you awake at that point. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that was the time where I was waiting um, to get approved for my implant. Right. Um, so now let's get onto the implant. Um, so I'm hoping maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you found out about the implant and just a bit about your journey about how you thought you might be a candidate for it. So um, the same surgeon who did my nasal turbinate reduction happens to also be um, a surgeon that does the Inspire implant. Uh Um, And I went to see him because I found out about it and because he had a brochure about it. So I, I asked about it. um, And in order to become a candidate, you have to go through a, a few steps and he thought I might be a good candidate, so it would be good to, to try. And mm-hmm. um, the other alternatives um, didn't sound very appealing to me. Um, and there, there were some other surgeries, but their you know, the rates of, of success depended on a lot of things, and it would depend on my anatomy. The reason I um, decided to move forward with the Inspire was that it was something to hope for. Because yeah. I had pretty much lost hope. By the time I looked at Inspire, mm-hmm. I was severely depressed and I had suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was told by um, my uh, a couple of my doctors um, that you know without successful treatment, they didn't see that I was going to improve. In fact, I might decline mm-hmm. most likely. So, so in um, terms of your cognition and that kind of thing, cognition. they were yeah. saying that it was going to get worse. It was going to get oh worse and goodness. potentially turn into a form of dementia. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that wasn't really something I was willing to accept as my future. Right. And, and, and at this time, I'm still, I'm still noticing all of the memory changes. I've no, I haven't gotten to the point where I don't know what's happening. So the Inspire um, thing is kind of, it almost looks like a pacemaker, right? Correct. Yeah, it's um, um exactly and it's actually inside. Like they they do a little surgery to put it inside your chest. Correct. So there's three incisions: one um, uh, um, on the neck, under the chin, and uh, one and everything's on the the right hand side. The pacemaker generally they put on the left hand side. Okay. Um, and then the battery, which is the same form factor as a pacemaker, that's um on my right chest. And then I have a sensing lead that they had to put in too. So there's a wire that runs or a lead that runs to intercostally between my rib cage. Okay. Between my ribs. So, so there's a sensing lead that, and what basically the functionality as I understand it, I inhale or inspire and the sensing lead notices that. 
And instead of the way that I normally sleep where my tongue blocks my airway, mm -hmm. now my tongue moves out of my airway gently with the stimulation. So on mm. every inhale. So it's kind of like a really cool system that allows my body to do what it naturally should be doing. Right. Without disrupting my sleep. And there's no mask. There's no, like from the outside, you can't see anything. So there's a remote control that you're using to send the device a signal that it needs to be on because you're going to sleep. Is that kind of <laughs> right? Um, so it looks like a mouse. It has a, a button for a plus and a mi minus button mm -hmm. inside um, this. There's a, there's like a ring um, that glows white when it's off and there's a green button in the middle that is play and pause. And then there's a gray button at the bottom that, and then on the back, this, this is where the magic happens. So at, at the office, they turned it on. Um, so you get your surgery, um, get the device implants. They put the device in and then you come back to the office to have it activated like about a month later. Okay. Uh, they let you heal up first and then they turn it on. So they turn it on in the office. They have a programmer. And what they do is they set the minimum and maximum level of stimulation so they try to find like a therapeutic level and you're going to go home and you work your way up the remotes. You start at like level one, which everybody's level is separate, you know, it's it's all unique, okay. unique for them. And so my, the amount of voltage that's connected to the level that I'm at is all specific to me. Okay. So you want to make it so the patients, obviously they want me to be comfortable. So mm -hmm. they start at this level one and then I, as I go home and work my way up the remote and there's 10 levels here. And then, um, then you would return after you've worked your way up the remote. So every week or so, you'd turn it up one notch with the mm -hmm. plus button. And then basically turn it on, I would push the button. I'll so the, re the remote is talking to the implant that you have. Yes. Yes. So I'll be trying again so you can hear it. Um, oh, yeah. So it starts with the white light. When I push the button, it's going to turn green and my tongue will move out of my airway for about four seconds and then 30 minutes later the therapy starts when I go to bed at night and it could be like if I'm going to take a nap too it doesn't mean it doesn't have so does to it feel night. so here's what I I kind of yeah. wonder about it does it yeah. feel like you don't have control of your tongue or is it more of a light like what does it feel like <laughs> it was an involuntary muscle movement it's a it's a motor yeah. nerve not a sensory nerve okay so it's not painful it's when it when they first activated the device um it moved my tongue out of my airway for the four seconds. It actually was, it, it felt funny. I actually was laughing. Right. It, was, it was just odd. But not, and it's not painful or anything Not like painful, that. Yeah. just different. And, okay. and at night when it's running, I, um, you, can, you can pause the therapy and let's say have a drink of water. Or go to the bathroom. <laughs> go to the bathroom. And I'm to the point now, I don't even pause it when I use the bathroom. I just let it run. Now, if I have a conversation and it's running, I'm likely to sound kind of funny. Okay. It doesn't Cause your really, tongue is kind yeah, of your tongue is still moving. <laughs> yeah. Every time you inhale, your tongue is stiffening, opening that, that airway a little bit mm -hmm. and because your tongue is moving out of, out of the way and allowing, you know, you to breathe. So rather than having an apnea event, now mm -hmm. you're missing them because you're ha having, you know, an open airway. Right. Great. Since I've been implanted, most insurance companies are um, covering it now. Oh, that's um, great including like Medicare and the VA and most insurance companies, not everyone, but, but they have this amazing team um, 
that I, I had this lovely lady named Terry, I'm going to name drop. Um, mm-hmm. She, she helped me through the entire time that I waited for approval. She, we, we had to do some interesting things. Uh, had to go through appeals um, from denials. And then I had, we had to do independent medical review and eventually I won. But if I didn't have Terry, I don't know if I would have won. Well, and, especially with, with the symptoms you were dealing with at the time, it's, yeah. it's exactly when you don't want to be fighting with insurance companies. Yeah. So she helped me to kind of get my ducks in a row. She was ready for all of the issues that might come up mm-hmm. because they were working with other patients. And because of what I went through and other patients went through, now the proce- approval process can be really rapid for a patient versus suffering silently. I think my, my best advice, because the only really good way to find out if someone's a good, a good candidate for Inspire would be to see one of the Inspire trained One of the doctors. doctors. Yeah. Either like the, one of the sleep doctors that's familiar with the therapy or, and they have them on their website. You can find it really easy by zip code, uh, is to go in for a consult, which I believe is not, you know, not an expensive feat. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, for me, like just knowing this therapy existed, gave me hope. It bought me a lot of time, um, you know, that I probably would have just been done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, I would, I'm so I would glad anyone. you found it. How long has it been now since you got your Inspire implant? I was implanted in July of 2018, so it's actually been um, two years and two one years. week. Okay, and how has your life changed, Karen? My life has changed in many ways. I work full-time. Um, I, when I sleep, I sleep at least eight hours. I don't gasp for air. I don't, um, I don't snort really loud. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wake myself up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yawn all day long and, and and try and find time to take a nap. Yeah. Um, I'm able to hold conversations, have meaningful uh, relationships that, you know, wouldn't have been possible before. Mm -hmm. And Um, and how about your, your cognition? Has that gone back to normal or where are you with that? um, I, my, my cognitive function, I would say that about three to four months in, to getting the implant, there was a significant improvement. And I have not gone to get retested, but from what I can tell, Mm -hmm. and from what my other doctors have told me, that there would, I wouldn't be able to perform at the level I am if I was still impaired. And I can tell my symptoms are um, almost gone. I, I like, you know, if I have a bad night of sleep, just like anyone else, yeah. Um, some of the stuff comes back. If I, if, if I don't use my device, which is very rarely happens, but if I forget to turn it on, I go back exactly the way I was. Wow. So the only difference between me and you, mm-hmm. um, on a night, let's say you don't use CPAP mm-hmm. and I, I don't use my, my implant, don't turn it on. Uh, we're going to be basically the same. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all I have to do is, you know, grab a fresh set of batteries you know, every <laughs> once in a while yeah. and, I, and I can go anywhere I want. And, um, I do, um, they do change the battery. The battery life of the implant is like around 11 years. 
Okay. So, I do so that's, have to go that's the that. battery actually inside your chest where right. they put it in. Right. Got so it. I do have to have that replaced um, around 11 years. And, um, and any 11 years past that, <laughs> that I'm wow. still here. Yeah, um, you're like, depending on how many 11 years. Like, and so, <laughs> I don't know, I, it might I, be quite a lot. Yeah, I figured, I did, I did remember someone saying, why, why would you want to get that? You're so young. And I'm like, that's my point. Right. Like, I, I want to be around. Right, exactly. Uh, and so, and, yes, it is kind of, it was a kind of, um, you know, like you said, it hasn't been around for a long time. Uh, a lot of people didn't know what it was until kind of recently, but it was FDA approved in, um, in 2014. And right. it, it's just that it takes a while. I know that, like, when um, I had my implant put in, there were 3,000 patients, and I know there's way more than that now. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of patients. So yeah, I suppose the more that the insurance companies, you know, cover it and go through the system, you know, the easier it's going to get for everybody else coming after you. Right. But so you're like a the, pioneer. Yeah, I'm like a pioneer. <laughs> That's me. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, I feel like I've drawn out some silver linings from uh, having sleep apnea and just all of the kind of struggles I've gone through and I was just wondering what what you think the silver linings to this journey have been for you well so many silver linings um I, I love this idea of thinking about this um mm -hmm. I would say that number one uh I now have an understanding of what it's like to to struggle to be able to do things that used to be easy. So I think like mm -hmm. when I look at somebody who is suffering from a cognitive impairment, I now can understand what that feels like. And it yeah. gives me a unique uh, understanding of how it feels on the inside. Yeah. Rather than what it feels like yeah. a lot. Yeah. Sure. And then um, also I can tell, I, I guess it's a kind of a, interesting to know who you can count on. Yeah. Um, you know, some people are like, you know, uh, there's like the, the friends that are there when everything's great, but you know, you have a really good friend when they're there when things aren't great. Yes. Like they're not oh. a fair weather friend. They're not they're a fair really, weather friend. They're, yeah. they're my rainy weather friend. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I have a bunch of those too. And it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. And then I've met so many patients on their journey and whether it was somebody that I met who after talking to me went and got a sleep study and is now have several several friends and I would say at least a dozen friends who have talked to me yeah found out found out that uh, they had sleep apnea have been treated both with CPAP successfully and yeah. actually a couple of my old friends have inspired now oh um, that's terrific which um where in their journey one in spe one specifically um their journey was unsuccessful and for years they had been suffering and not getting um a therapeutic benefit from CPAP and they had given up mm. and they weren't doing anything. And There's so uh, many people out there in, in that, I mean, I think that yeah. CPAP's one of those things where it's, it's, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's wonderful, <laughs> but like, you know, when it works for somebody, like I have mine on nine hours a night and I, I'm at least getting oxygen to my brain and it's yeah. reduced how much I start breathing and everything. But for so many people, they don't even get any of the benefit because they just can't get used to it and they don't like it. So they kind of just give up, which is just, you know, having untreated sleep apnea can be so dangerous. So dangerous. So. And, and um, that 
I think that the other silver lining, I mean, I can think of a billion, but uh, I think I've, ta I've taken away the stigma a little bit, um, specifically yes. for women. But um, even like I've had several male friends that are very successful with CPAP. And I, have, I asked one of them recently, like, what would you have done different? And they said, I would have listened to you earlier yeah. if I had known how good I was going to feel. Yeah. But everyone's afraid. I yes. think that, and that's one message that I think that the, 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 the physician community needs to know. Mm -hmm. And even like doctors that treat sleep apnea, the reason why the person gets to your office is probably because they're terrified. Yeah. The last thing they want to hear is that they're non-compliant. Right. The, one, the thing I, I would love for doctors to change the language and talk yes. about is adherence. Yes. Because adherence isn't, isn't very no. blame. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so I found that doctors that use the, just change their language a little bit mm -hmm. and use the word adherence and not that insurance based model of compliance. Right. But that, that patient is likely. It just change. It just changes the whole tone of the interaction at that point. And I think, I mean, I, you know, the, the sleep doctors that I've seen, it's not that they did a terrible job, but I was kind of sent home with the CPAP and then, and really like CPAP is a difficult thing to get used to using. And I feel like there needs to be a lot more support, you know, rather than yes. just saying, look, these are the results. Here you go. Off you go. And, <laughs> like, And I think like the, the organizations like the American Sleep Apnea Association mm -hmm. have so many great. And, and they, they normally have a there. conference, don't they? Yeah. And I did their, their conference. Uh, that was like, a really, really amazing experience. And, and the first time it actually in person gotten together with other people with sleep apnea. Great. So they no longer were just people in a Facebook group. Right. But real people, <laughs> real people. So I think like, you know, silver lining would be, I know what it's like to recover. Yeah. And I know that there, that there are therapies that work for different people. I, I absolutely believe that CPAP is the first line mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people. And, um, you know, sh you should give, people should give it a shot and not be so afraid to mm -hmm. at least try it because it could solve this problem. Um, right. the silver lining, I'm able to, like when, when somebody says there's something wrong and, and, um, they were curious, they didn't know anything, they didn't even know what sleep apnea was. Mm -hmm. I'm able to give them enough information for them to not be afraid to go get checked. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. And that's exactly why I wanted to do this podcast, just to help tell your story. And hopefully, even if people are having a really tough time with using a CPAP, they can not give up hope and to know that there are alternative treatments out there. Yes, so, yes. And I definitely um, appreciate you um, giving me some time to talk about uh, what works for me. Yeah. But it, I, I by no means know everything. I just know this worked for me. It has worked for other people I know. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, there's something out there, I think for almost everyone, yeah. um, you know, just like any other, um, type of, um, condition, not every therapy works for everyone. Right. Definitely. Well, Karen, thank you so much for spending time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. So a big thank you to Karen for sharing her story so openly and honestly. Um, I think she's going to help a lot of people who are having a really tough time with sleep apnea to keep trying different treatments until they find something that works for them. 
So if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. But more importantly than that, I would love for you just to reach out to anyone you know with sleep apnea and share it with them. I think the more that we can build a community of um, people coping with sleep apnea, um, the more supported we'll all feel. So episodes go up every two weeks on Saturdays. So I'll see you soon for episode three.